Hey Gateway, thanks for joining us today. I invite you, if you have your Bible, why don't you go ahead and open it to the book of Ephesians. Ephesians 2, starting at verse 11. And while you're looking there, happy Thanksgiving to you. I, I hope that you have a day filled with joy and gladness both today and tomorrow on Thanksgiving Monday. I hope it's filled with family and close friends, whether that's uh, physically gathering together or if you're making phone calls uh, to loved ones, celebrating together all the things that God has done in your life. We have so much to be thankful for, don't we? And so hopefully both today and tomorrow we can be reminded of all the things that God has done in our life. And you know, this past week as I was walking through the scripture text in Ephesians, I thought to myself just for a moment, maybe we should kind of take a break from Ephesians and do a more traditional Thanksgiving text like uh, Psalm 100. Um, but you know, when I, when I read through this, I thought to myself, if this isn't a Thanksgiving text, I don't know what is. And my hope is as we read through this together, you can see why we chose to keep marching through because this is the source of our ultimate hope, the source of our ultimate joy in Christ. And so hopefully today and tomorrow, we can give thanks on account of what we read today. So let me set the stage for you. A couple years ago, the New York Times issued an entire issue, not just an article, but the whole paper was on one sociological trend, one idea. And so sociologists, they've been studying uh, for many, many years, they got together and they found that there are two things that are happening simultaneously within North America and the church today. The first one is that now more than ever before, there is a deep spiritual hunger, that people are hungry to have a personal relationship with a Lord and God, who we identify as Jesus Christ. And so there's a deep spiritual hunger. But at exactly the same time, people are leaving the church in droves, and there's a, a growing disinterest in the local church. And so there's a hunger for God, but not for his church. A hunger for spirituality, but not for religion. And that's why this whole issue was called God Decentralized. It's, it's actually quite a fascinating title, a very astute observation of our culture today. And that trend continues to grow. In fact, uh, Barna just did a, a recent poll on this, polling just Christians. And the question that was asked was this, do you believe that you can be a very good Christian without ever being a part of a local church? And 81% of Christians polled, more than four out of five Christians said, yeah, of course. And that's what's going to make uh, what we're talking about today so incredibly difficult. Because last week, when we read through verses 1 through 10, and, and we heard about our hope in Jesus, having that relationship with Jesus, that was something that stirred up our affections, didn't it? When we were looking at that story of the Chilean miners, 33 men who were 2,300 feet below the surface, and then people all around the world getting together, trying to save them, trying to resurrect these living dead people, trying to get them out of their predicament. Why did over a billion people tune in live to watch when they finally rose from the surface? Because it captivates our hearts. There's something, something that's happening in there that, that stirs up our affection. But now we're going to get to verse 11. And Jesus 
through the Apostle Paul is going to say, all of that resurrection power, all of that hope, all of that vitality of life, all of that joy, God brings to bear within his church. Within his church. And that might be the moment where we have some questions. We might say, wait, what, what do you mean, Justin? Are you, are you saying that, that I can't have a personal relationship with Jesus without being part of his church? No, I'm, I'm not saying that. I, I just want to be faithful to Scripture. And so maybe the more helpful question that we can ask, according to what we're going to read today, is this. Can the surpassing power of God come into your life individually and not corporately? Can the, the power of God come into your life and flow through your life if you are not deeply grafted into a community of faith, love, accountability, and mission? And the answer to that question, according to Paul, according to Peter, and according to Jesus, is no. No. And so that, I believe, is one of the reasons why what we're going to read today is going to be so incredibly difficult. Because we live in a hyper-individualistic culture where it makes all the sense in the world for us to have a deep spiritual relationship with Jesus, but wanting absolutely nothing to do with his church. Wanting nothing to do with what Paul is going to identify as the household of faith. And so that's what's going to be so difficult and so challenging for what we're about to read today. So there's going to be two important questions that Paul's going to answer for us. The first question is this. Is the church necessary? And if so, what does a healthy church look like on the inside? Right? So there's going to be some introspection. The second question is going to be, what kind of things will a healthy church engage with on the outside? All right, so that's where we're going today. You got your Bibles? Ephesians chapter 2, starting at verse 11. It says this, therefore, stop right there. We're only one word in, but every single time you get the word therefore, you got to ask that question. What's the therefore? Therefore, you know what I'm saying? And so we have to take a little bit of time to look back and, and to say, what did we learn last week? So just as a refresher for most of us, but maybe a little bit of an update for those who are just joining us this week, what we learned last week is that who we were before Jesus, before his death and resurrection, who we were is dead to sin and separated from God. That's what we learned in Ephesians 2 verse 1. He says this, As for you, you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins like the rest, and we were by nature deserving of wrath. And so Paul last week explained the depravity of you. Not of the world, not of other people, you. And he says you were spiritually dead. You weren't dying. You weren't on the verge of death. You weren't on life support. You were spiritually dead. That was our moral predicament before Jesus. And so in, in spite of who you are, in spite of what you've done, in spite of, heaven forbid, the things that have been done to you, you might have started thinking to yourself, maybe this is just who I am. But then we got to verse 4, those two powerful words that change everything. This is the cause of thanksgiving. This is the sure and certain hope that we have. Two words, but God. God says, that's who you were, Justin. But now let me show you who you are in Jesus. 
And we ended with verse 10, where Paul says, you are God's poema. You are his workmanship. You are his handiwork. You are his, his love letter, is a, a literal translation, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God has prepared in advance for you to do. Then he says, therefore, and we're going to learn all the implications of what that means for your life and for my life too. Ephesians 2.11, therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth, that's us, and called the uncircumcised by those who called themselves the circumcision, that's the Jews, which is done in the body by human hands, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ. You were excluded from citizenship in Israel. You were foreigners of the covenant of the promise of God. You were without hope and you were without God in the world. Verse 13, but now, there it is again, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Verse 14, for he himself is our peace who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and all of its regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death all of their hostility. Now, there's one thing that we have to recognize right away that was outlined in verse 12, and it's that in the Old Testament, to be separated from the people of Israel meant, in essence, to be separated from God. So what that means is, if you wanted a relationship with God, Yahweh, the one true God, Adonai, then you had to join together with the people of Israel. And there are a couple examples of that in the Old Testament. We can think of uh, Rahab the prostitute, or uh, Ruth, who was a Gentile, and then Boaz was her kinsman redeemer. Both of these ladies become part of the of the genealogy of Jesus, and so they're grafted into the people of Israel. But by and large, Israel was a, an exclusive clan, an exclusive group, and everyone else on the outside, if they wanted a relationship with God, they had to join together with the people of Israel. And right here in this place, it outlines something we know to be true today, perhaps more than ever. And that is that there is a dividing wall of hostility in many different ways, is there not? Dividing walls of hostility on account of our race, or our socioeconomic class, or our gender, or our culture, or our religion, or our, our nations. And the same thing was true in the first century context as well. And there can be absolutely no doubt that when Paul was writing this, he was thinking of the dividing wall that would divide the uh, temple in Jerusalem. I have a picture of this. I want to show this to you. So here's the temple in Jerusalem. And as you can see here, there was a wall that was built on the outside. And this was called the Court of Gentiles. But on this wall, there would be inscriptions. That's what I have right here. And these inscriptions would say, no Gentiles allowed, or Gentiles will enter at the risk of their own death. Um, all these inscriptions outside the exterior wall, all the way around, telling them, you are prohibited from entering inside. 
And then even as the Jews enter inside, there was a court exclusively for women. They could not go inside into the temple building. That was exclusively for men. So the temple itself had dividing walls of hostility all around it. And Paul most certainly is talking about this. And so we see the significance of the wall. In the eyes of the Jews, it literally separated the good from the bad, the moral from the immoral, the clean from the unclean, the chosen from the unchosen. Let me just give you uh, one story that I find so fascinating about this. If you have your Bibles, uh, look at Acts chapter 21 and 22. We're not going to read the whole thing today, but I encourage you to read it later, both chapters and even the early parts of chapter 23. And there, uh, it tells a story where Paul was being accused uh, by (laughs) a lot of Jews because he brought a Gentile inside the court. And an entire mob breaks out. So they walk inside. He starts instructing the people. They're angry because he brought a Gentile inside. And then he says, Jesus Christ died for both Jews and Gentiles. And on account of that, Acts 22, verse 22, the mob breaks out and says, kill this man. He's not fit to live. Immediately after that. And then the Roman authorities, the soldiers, they, they take Paul away because otherwise he'd be put to death. And uh, they throw him in a prison, sale, a prison cell, and there he stays. And this is what I find so fascinating about this story. While in that prison cell, he writes the letter to the Ephesians. We've got to see the irony in this. He is talking about the very subject that brought him to the prison cell. The very motivation for that. It's a a personal life experience that led to that moment which inspired him to write this word of God. Love it. So cool. And so just like that, where we ended last week, Paul once again says there is literally only one category of people on the planet. Sinners, of which we all are. You don't need to have any arbitrary lines highlighting who's more sinful or less sinful, who's more moral or less moral. Our condition for each and every one of us, remember the whiteboard last week? Whether you're Mother Teresa or Adolf Hitler, did one person do more moral things? Absolutely. But the condition of both of them is they could not save themselves. They needed a redeemer, each and every one of us are in desperate need of someone to save us from our moral predicament, from our separation from God. There's no good people and bad people, moral people and sinners. There are only bad, dysfunctional, dead people in need of the saving grace of Jesus. That's it. That's what we learn in verse 23. Take a look at this again. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near. How? by the blood of Christ. By the blood of Christ. The blood of Christ sets us free. Stop. Full stop. That's it. The blood of Christ sets us free to the glory of God and to the rejoicing of his people. If you need something to celebrate today and tomorrow on this Thanksgiving weekend, allow that to be your source of hope. Allow that to be the cause of your celebration, the source of your joy the source of your thanksgiving, that Jesus Christ died for you and died for me. I find this so incredible. 
Remember the, uh, the doctrine of election? We've been talking about this for the last couple of weeks, and, and I know this is one of those fourth dimensional truths. How does the doctrine of election uh, come together with the doctrine of free will? How, do we, are, how are we to understand those things? All of which are great questions. But the one thing that Paul is outlining here, the one thing that he wants us to know full well, is that God has chosen you God has appointed you for a reason. You are God's poema. You are his workmanship, and he has prepared in advance good works for you to do. Elsewhere in Scripture, Jesus says he has appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. Jesus outlines this story in John chapter 15. If you abide in me and I in you, I will bear good fruit in you. The work that he has called us to do is to bring about the gospel to bear in the world. And so Paul has some, some rather striking things to say to both the Jews and the Gentiles, and I want to very briefly outline them for you. And before I do that, I think it's very fitting for those of us who are Christians, I, I know maybe not all of us who are watching today are Christians, but if you are a Christian, I think there's something for you in his message both to the Jews and to the Gentiles. Or another way of saying this, to the insiders as well as the outsiders. Because, truth be told, every single one of us are Gentiles. There, to my knowledge, are no ethnic Jews who are members of Gateway. Um, so we're all Gentiles, and so there, there's a message for us there. But also, there's a message for those of us who are on the inside, who are part of the church today. And so maybe, just maybe, we have something to learn from both groups. So Paul starts by talking to the insiders, and here's, in essence, what he says. He says, remember when you were, quote, unquote, the, the circumcised, that, that somewhat odd tradition of uh, really affecting the, the male human body to set us apart from other nations, outlining that we are to be holy and blameless in the sight of God? But what was the purpose of all of that? Why did God set you apart? And the answer to that question is to embrace your missional identity so that other nations on the outside would see the light of God shining through and they would come into your nation and on account of that, God's kingdom would continue to grow. But he says to the Jews, he says, what did you do? You created a literal line of division, a literal line of hostility. Remember that, that picture? On the outside, no Gentiles allowed, enter upon your own death. See, you used your missional purpose and identity, being the elect children of God, to outline who's in and who's out, who's moral and who's immoral, who's good and who's bad. But the whole purpose of it, the whole purpose of your election, was for you to share the good news of God in the world, that God desperately seeks to save. You have given up your missional identity. And I think about that, and I think about the column, the issue that was written in the New York Times, how people who are on the outside have now more than ever a desperate hunger for spirituality, but no interest in the local church. And I think maybe, just maybe, there's something that we have to lament here. Maybe, just maybe, there, there's something that we have to mourn. Have we too, at times in our life, forgotten our missional identity? 
And the second group that he talks to are the outsiders, the Gentiles. And he says, can I tell you something? Remember when you were thought of as less than, when you were left out, when you weren't part of the people of God? He outlines in, in verse 12, you were separate from Christ. You were excluded from citizenship in Israel. You were foreigners to the covenant of promise. You were without hope. You were without God in the world. Do you remember when you were in that moral predicament and how you wanted to be on the inside? But now, through the blood of Jesus Christ, you have been invited in. And then he continues in verse 17. Take a look at this with me. He says, he came and preached peace to you who were far away, that's the Jews, and peace to those who were near, that's the Jews, first Gentiles, then the Jews. For through him, we both have access to the Father by one Spirit. And and the image that I have in my mind is as though Paul through, or Jesus through Paul, has the Gentiles on one side and the Jews on the other side. He's holding both of their hands and he kind of forces both of them to hold hands with each other. And he says, listen, you are now part of the household of faith together. You are both siblings in the household of God. And, and I can't think about this without think of a story um, in, in my own family, Julie's family. She has uh, multiple siblings, but two of them, Russ and Colleen, they're both middle children. And apparently they would fight a whole lot when uh, they were growing up. And one of the things that my in-laws did whenever they were fighting is uh, they would make them walk around the farm holding hands. But they didn't like that very much, and so Russ would always wear an enormous hockey glove, and Colleen would always wear multiple mittens, and then they would hold hands walking all the way around. They would hold hands begrudgingly, and and I think that's what Paul is doing here. This is not good news to the Jews or to the Gentiles, because there's some hostility there. There's some resentment there. There has been some anger building up in that relationship. And Paul says, listen, you are now united under the banner of Jesus, where there is no more hostility. Let me break this down for you. He says, there is one race, the human race, and there is only one problem. It's called sin. There's only one solution. His name is Jesus, and there's only one hope. It's called the resurrection, and there is only one mission, and it is the sharing of the gospel with those who don't yet know it. All of us fall under that rule. All of us fall under that household and that mandate. And so my hope for you, my hope for me, is that we can meditate on this reality. And so Paul says, now that you know who you are in relationship with Jesus, I want you to have a deeper awareness of who you are in relationship to one another. And so I've outlined four things for us to walk through in this who we are in Jesus Christ, and who we are to one another. Number one, we are one spiritual family. Look again at verse 19. He says this, Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens, circle, highlight, underline, with God's people, and also members of his household, circle, highlight, underline built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. So this is what we have to see. 
Paul says that we are all God's household. He doesn't say the church is like a family. I think it would be a mistake for us to say, oh, what a neat metaphor. That's kind of cool. We're kind of like a family. No, he says, you are a family. In fact, get this, in heaven, I won't be Justin Carruthers. I will be Justin, son of the Most High God, heir of God, and co-heir with Christ Jesus. And you will be either son or daughter of God. And on account of that, we will be siblings in Christ. But it's actually more than that. It's even more. Look again at the passage. He says, consequently, you are. That's a, a really important word. It's a present active tense What that means is, this isn't a reality that's going to come in heaven. It means it's a reality right here and right now. Every single time we gather together as Christians, we need to say to one another, we are part of the household of faith. In that moment, I'm no longer Justin Carruthers. I am Justin, heir of God, co-heir with Jesus, along with you, and that reality is lived out right now in the moment. We are siblings through Christ, in a deeply spiritual sense. And what that means is our spiritual family will outlast our biological family by the duration of an eternity. And our hope and our joy is that we can celebrate that way together. And I know that that Due to COVID, we can't gather together, but I just have this image in my mind for all of us, regardless of whether we have an enormous biological family who lives nearby, or I know for a fact that many of us have no family in the area. And this time of year, this season, sometimes brings a lot of disappointment and a lot of sadness and and a lot of uh, eating microwavable meals on Thanksgiving Day all by yourself. But I have this, this thought, this image, this vision of the church gathering together around one amazing banquet feast, beholding the power of God as children of God, as siblings together, that we can celebrate our identity in Christ even more than our biological unity. Imagine being a church like that. That's something that we can have right here and right now. So Paul says we are one spiritual family. The second thing he says is that God desires us to be a member of his family. Notice he says in verse 19, you are a member of God's very own family. And that says it all. It's not optional. Every single Christian needs to be a part of the Christian family, a part of the household of God. See, a Christian without his family, without the church family, is kind of like someone who says, I want to be in the NFL, but I don't want to be part of the team. I want to be in the army, but I have no desire to be part of the platoon. Uh, I, I want to play a musical instrument, but I have no desire to be part of the orchestra. I want a personal relationship with Jesus, but I have no interest in the local church. Jesus says, Paul says, Peter says, that does not compute. Paul brings uh, the, the message that all of Jesus' resurrecting power, all of his surpassing power that we learned about in verse 1 through 10, comes to bear in the local church. So what this means is, there is no such thing as a mature and thriving Christian who is not deeply connected to the people of God. 
The image that comes to mind for me is uh, if one of my children, I'm not going to name an example child, but if one of my children came up to me and said, Dad, I love our relationship, and Mom, she's okay too. She can stay, but man, these other kids, can't you just like ship them off to boarding school and it just be the three of us? Then everything would be perfect if it was just us together and there were no other kids in the house. Of course I'm going to say no to that. I'm going to say, listen, buddy, or listen, gal, you, if you want a relationship with the father, you got to have a relationship with the kids. It's a package deal. And so that's the, the third thing that we learn in this, and this one's going to pinch. A Christian without a church family is an orphan. Now, I know that I probably just lost half of you. Say, well, I think that's an overstatement, Justin. I, I don't know if that's exactly what, what Scripture says. Well, I, I want to encourage you to do some homework for me. If you don't believe me, I want you to go to Scripture, and I want you to test this assessment. Um, I, I had 18 passages of Scripture. I'm just going to give you four, all right? Four passages of, of Scripture that highlight this. So take note of these. Colossians chapter 1, Romans chapter 12, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and then go back and read all of Ephesians chapter 2 with this concept in mind. Read those four chapters. And in every single one of these, Paul is going to explain that to be in a relationship, in a G, in a relationship with Jesus necessitates having a relationship with the household of faith. And conversely, what that means is, if you are not a part of the household of faith, then you are not going to experience the full breadth and the benefits of being connected to the household of faith. And so Paul is constantly telling us, time after time after time after time, if you want a deeper relationship with Jesus, you got to be part of the household of faith. He doesn't use the, the image of a, a rebellious child wanting to ship off the fellow siblings to boarding school, but the most powerful image that he gives is that of a body. He says, suppose an arm says to itself, I want no relationship with the body, I only want a relationship with the head, and the arm severs itself from the body. Does it not, in exactly the same moment, sever itself and separate itself from the head? Both of them happen simultaneously. And so that, that's, I put it this way. The moment the arm is disconnected from the body, it's disconnected from the head as well. One foul swoop. And so the question you might ask is, all right, Justin, how involved should I be with the church? What does that look like? And the only answer that I can give you is, well, as much and to the extent that you want God to work in your life. The church, Paul tells us, is how God works on earth. The means by which he brings his resurrecting power to bear upon the world and upon you. And I love the image that he uses in verse 22. This is how this section ends. He says, and in him, you two are being built together to become a dwelling place in which God lives by his spirit. So Paul says that God is building this new structure, this new race, this new dwelling place for God's Holy Spirit. But look at the image for a moment. He says only together, every single one of us kind of representing a brick of the house, right? I love this image. Um, brick by brick by brick, we put together the household of God. And only together, when that house is built... 
on a firm foundation, the cornerstone of Jesus, does it become the dwelling place of God's Holy Spirit. And individually, separated from that, you're just a brick. (laughs) You're just a brick. But together, we become the dwelling place of God. And so here's the implications of this. You, you might have in, in your own life or, or someone in your life, they might say something like, God, I need direction in my life. And God says, well, I put my direction in the church. They might say, you know, I, I just need some serious help. God says, go to my church. They might say, God, I'm just so lonely. He says, go to my church. They might say, God, I, I just don't understand you. And he says, again, go to my church. All of the benefits that I want to give to you are in the household of faith. Go to my church. That's where you can find these things. God says, I put all these gifts, all the ways I want to minister to you, I brought them to bear upon my church. And so then you might say, Justin, all right, but what does that look like? Does it just mean I I need to when COVID's not happening, attend church. But when it is happening, I, I got to show up and watch services every week. Is that the extent of what we're talking about? No, no. Let me give you just, just one litmus test, one way to evaluate how you can do this in a very practical sense. Um, if you have your sermon guide, uh, if you've downloaded it online, you will notice that the last page has um, many of the one another commands of scripture. And uh, I've outlined almost all of them, not all of them, but the vast majority of them I put on this sheet. And as you read through those later, I want you to ask this question. I want you to ask, do I have a system of mutual love and accountability with fellow Christians that models the one another commands of scripture? So you're going to read through these commands and you're going to come across things like Hebrews chapter 3, which says, exhort one another daily, lest you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Are you in Christian relationships where you can actually do that? Or think about Romans 12 verse 10, be devoted to one another in love. Do you have those kinds of Christian relationships? Or Romans 15, instruct one another daily. Do you have those kinds of relationships? Galatians 2, carry one another's burdens and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. Do you have these systems of love and encouragement and mutual accountability built into your life? That's the litmus test. See, as you can see, this is not just instructive. It assumes that most of us are deeply involved with a community of faith where these things are naturally happening, where uh, you can not just share your big sins with other people, but also the sins that you tend to miss, the sins that tend to harden you, the the sins that tend to blind you, your, your most hidden sins. And that assumes that there's groups of Christians in your life who have a good enough relationship with you that they can reach out and say, hey, how are you doing in this area? How can I be praying for you? Are you growing in that area? How can you be praying for me? Those types of relationships where you can lovingly encourage and exhort one another. I mean, if there is any benefit of COVID-19, it is that the church has never been and will never be a building. The church, the ecclesia, the called out ones, the gathered and scattered ones, it is the people 
within that church, that building, that comprises of the church. The thing that was so interesting about me sharing the temple with you, what happened after Jesus Christ died on the cross? The temple curtain was torn in two, and then later at Pentecost, uh, Peter tells all of us that the Holy Spirit now resides in us. In us. We are the temple. Collectively, we are the temple. And that's what we're reading right here in Ephesians chapter 2. The Holy Spirit comes to bear upon us as people. It has exited the building. And so my hope and my prayer for you is that you have people in your life that you can eat with, you can serve with, you can play with, you can cry with, you can share with. And in that way, you can continue to grow in your love and serve the Lord with gladness. And then there's one final thing that Paul outlines for us as Christians. He says, as we are part of the household of faith, the church will be missional. We will be on mission. What does a healthy church look like on the outside? See, a church that is deeply aware of our calling in ways that the Jewish community pre-first century missed the mark, and the way that many of us, many churches today, continue to miss the mark, is we look at our election as a determination of who's in and who's out. Who are the elect, who are not. Who are called, who are uncalled. Who are good, who are bad. Who are moral, who are immoral. But what Jesus is saying is, if you are the elect of God, you have been chosen to share the good news of the gospel with those who don't yet know it. That is your, the essence of your calling as a Christian. And so we are to be proclaiming God's word to our cities. We are to be asking those questions, God, where are you leading us? Who ought I be praying for specifically that they might come to know Jesus? Who ought I have started building relationships with in my community, in my workplace, in my family, with my co-workers, with my friends? God wants us to share the good news of the gospel with those who don't yet know it. He says, remember when you were on the outside? Verse 12, remember when you were excluded from citizenship, separate from Christ, foreigners to the covenant, without hope, without God in the world? Do you remember that time when you were without Jesus Christ? But now, dear Christian, let me tell you, on account of the blood of Jesus, you have been set free. And allow that to humble your heart in such a way that it draws you to want to share that with others. It draws you in to want to have deep, lasting relationships with Christians so that you can be a, a part of the household of faith, so that you can experience the power of God. And so let me say it to you this way. Dear Christian, don't be a brick. Be a temple. Don't be a brick. Be a temple. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, I thank you that you have brought your Holy Spirit to bear upon your people. And it says in your word, where two or more are gathered in my name, there I am with them. And in the context of what we just read, I think we understand it a little bit more. Only when we gather together as the household of faith do we invoke the Holy Spirit in powerful ways. We ask that you would make us into a temple. 
united by faith in Jesus Christ. And we ask during this Thanksgiving weekend that we would take time to give thanks for all that you have done in our lives. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, who is our Lord and our Savior and our Redeemer. Amen. Happy Thanksgiving, everybody. Have a great week. See you next week.